I woke up with a massive hangover Saturday morning. I was eating some bacon my wife was gracious enough to make for me. And I immediately had this memory of pulling my dick out. And a mixture of embarrassment and shame flooded over me. Later that evening, I attended a party and not five minutes into me appearing at said party, my friend's balls were hanging out of his pants. I didn't feel so bad anymore. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It is great to have you. It is Sunday, February 23, and I've got a hell of a show for you this evening. That's right. But all parts will be staying in the pants. Just forewarning you. Sorry. Uh, I would like to thank all of you who are in the chat, who join me every episode I really dig it. It means a lot, and I appreciate it. You make this thing that I do a little bit worthwhile when it's live. So, Charles Lee Ray, first time. Cheers, brother. Thanks for joining me. Dallas, how are you, my friend? Peanut butter toast, what up? Valeria, how are you, my dear? Kyle, how's it going, man? Grigori, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, okay. For anyone else who gets in the live chat, I'll, I'll call you out when I, when I can see and when we have the time for it. I do have a lot to go over today. I'm going to do my best not to lose my shit today. But <laughs> uh, there's, there's some stuff I'm going to be going over that might push my, my uh, buttons a little bit. You know what I mean? Okay, so I, I went to two different parties this weekend. And it wasn't really like party parties. Uh, I've only uh, participated slash conducted two destruction rituals in my entire life. That's it. My very first one was years ago. I mean, circa 1996-ish. Like a very long time ago. Uh, before I ever affiliated myself with uh, the organization, the Church of Satan. But I was identified as a Satanist at the time. And the second one was Friday night. And it's strange when, at least for me, when you make that conscious decision, this is more than uh, just ignoring someone or shaming someone or whatever. I, I have to fucking destroy this person or these people. And again, they're crying out for it. So am I kind of giving them a service? <laughs> By making it official? Maybe. But they had to fucking go. So I fucking burned them down. And it felt really wonderful. Like, really, really good. 
I just, I fucking loved it. Um, so, cheers to the human sacrifice. Mm. Goddamn good. Uh, however, I did realize that I might have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> I hadn't drank anything for the past two weeks. Um, I, I realized that the problem that I had with my eyes that I spoke about in a previous episode, um, one of the triggers is too much alcohol consumption. And so I've been paring back how much I drink. I decided Friday and Saturday, and obviously tonight, to have a drink or two. I had a lot more than a drink or two Friday night. After that destruction ritual, man, it was just like the fucking weight was lifted and I just wanted to celebrate. And boy, oh boy, did I. <laughs> to shame. I don't know. If, if, you, if you consume too much and you don't have some form of shame the next day, did you really party as hard as you could have? I mean, I'm all in or I'm all out. So if I'm going to be partying, I want to get down. You know what I mean? It was a good time. Um, <laughs> then yesterday night, uh, I went to a birthday party. <clears throat> Old friend, good friend, had fun, good times. And then right at the end of the night, <laughs> one of the other people were like, hey, you want to hit of this? And I was like, yeah. And then everything went from just cool to pure insanity of me not being able to get out of that house fast enough before my consciousness left my body <laughs> i was just like fucking beelining to my car as fast as possible like yelling behind me for my wife like drive me home i gotta get home i know what's coming i've been in this place before and i don't want to be at someone else's house and like lose my shit uh, and so I got home and everything passed normally. It was fine. But I'm just saying, I might have a problem <laughs> with consumption. Hmm. Anyway, before this episode takes a dive and turn for the worse, let me, uh, okay, so my, my daughter's birthday is coming up middle next week, right? I still remember holding this little baby like 11 years ago in my hands in the hospital and she was so fragile and delicate and my wife had to go um, for some other medical procedure right afterward and so I'm literally holding my brand new baby girl who was all clean and swaddled up and you know had her shots and every wiped to you know everything was taken care of by the nurses and stuff and it was just me in the delivery room with my daughter and I'm dancing with her, and I'm singing some Sinatra to her, just, you know, American Songbook type stuff. And I'm promising her that I will always be there for her, and I will always protect her, and nothing will ever happen to her. And then I flash forward to walking her to school every single day, and holding her hand, and just talking in the mornings on the way to school, and just having this connection with her. And now she's at a point where she doesn't even want to fucking say goodbye to me when she leaves for school. And she's leaving earlier. And she's trying to get away with wearing stuff that we would never let her wear as if she was already a fucking teenager. And she's got attitude every time she talks to us. And I just... Watching, watching her grow up 
was so different than watching my son grow up, it just sort of tears at your heartstrings, knowing that in a couple years, she won't even want to look at me. And all I want to do is hold her and fucking dance with her. <sighs> Being a dad is so tough, man. <laughs> it's tough. So, I will pass on uh, a happy birthday, man. Thank you. It's weird. It's it's tough being a parent. They're so fucking mean. <laughs> They're just worthless little shits. All the fucking time in those moments of love and kindness that come back at you after years of you putting it in uh, to them are so few and far between. And so you just cherish them when you see them, you know? You just hold on to them because they're so glorious. And those tiny little moments make everything else worthwhile. Oh, goddamn. Um, hi, Amy. Good to see you. It's been a long time. Uh, let's see. Shauna, I know you. I've heard of you before. And Jordan, thanks for joining us, man. <clears throat> All right, before we get into uh, the show proper, let me go over what we're going to be talking about. And then I got one little thing before we dive in head first here. Uh, in The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about something that I was thinking about the other day on the way to work. Um, and I'm titling it, At What Cost? But you could also call it um, The Unbalance Factor. Uh, and so I'll get into that here in just a minute. In, in the Infernal Informant segment we got two articles as per usual we're gonna be talking about california couple missing for eight days found alive and police call it a miracle and then the second article is 75 years ago today u.s marines raised the american flag over iwo jima and here's the inside story i'm gonna try not to fucking break down crying on that one but it's gonna be tough uh, and in the creature feature i'm gonna be talking about my favorite board game ticket to ride um and if you already know about it, well, then just celebrate it with me for this short little discussion. I don't imagine it'll be very long, but that's what I'm going to talk about because I want to. What I'm trying to do with the Creature Feature segment is that I want to feature a different element of entertainment that I find of value. So whether that's a film or a book or a game or whatever, um, a character, or you know, I, just, I want to focus on something different every time. And so sometimes we're going to talk about board games. Sometimes we may dive into fucking um, uh, an actress or an actor that I want to shag. I mean, I don't know where it's going to go. It might get weird. That's exciting, right? That's part of the fun. Um, and lately, okay, here's the other thing. Before I, before I, I finish off this this intro segment, I've been my emotions are raw lately. So. I mean, just just be aware. Uh, we we rented um, Jojo Rabbit from Redbox, my wife and I, and she was like, uh, "Oh, we should get um, that the the um, the neighborhood one about Mister Rogers um, that Tom Hanks is in." Won't you be my neighbor? I think it is. Uh, I was like, "No, I don't want to watch that because I know if I watch that, I'm gonna fucking ball my eyes out, and I don't want to ball my eyes out." Um, I watched the documentary on HBO and it broke me down. Uh, so I don't, I'm just not in the mood. And we were watching Jojo Rabbit and God damn it, if it didn't break me fucking down, like 
what the fuck is going on? Like, I, I'm just so emotionally raw right now. And I don't know if it's because it was a lead up of everything that, that I've been dealing with with my friend that's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to address a, another writing of his that like, I've been doing every single episode. I don't know if it's from that. I don't know if it's just the fucking alignment of the moon and stars and whatever. But, oh, God damn, if Jojo Rabbit isn't probably the best movie I've seen all year, it's it's got to be a runner-up. It is an amazingly emotional and hilarious film that just saw Adam, like, ugly crying. <laughs> Not just, like, you know, trying to be tough, like you're in the theater and you're just letting a single tear drop. You're just like, that's right. I'm still sensitive, but I'm a man. No, this was just like... <laughs> Like, ugly fucking crying type shit. Holy fuck, man. It was crazy. Um, great show. <laughs> I'll probably talk about it in a in, in one of the Creature Features someday. But I'm raw lately, and that's why I'm a little concerned about this episode. Um, okay, so I want to start the show again uh, with my buddy Colin and give a little a little bit of an update for everyone who may not be up to date with what he's been dealing with. So he was, uh, he smacked his girl. He patiently waited because he knew, you know, that it was the wrong fucking thing to do after he did it and emotions were overtaking him. He sent a message to friends saying, look, you've been dealing with my immigration. I made a mistake and I smacked my girl in the eye. And, um, you know, it's been like 10, 20 minutes, but I think she's going to call the police. So I'm just going to, you know, kick back and wait for that to happen. So 10, 20 minutes after she confided with i guess some friends of hers that decided yeah fuck that guy he should go to fucking jail she called the police they came and she was like he beat me up and he was like i smacked her in the face and they're like all right come with us and so they put him in jail um uh, like 15 20 hours later she calls the police and says you picked up my husband and he tried to kill me and he's been trying to kill me for so long and blah 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 Totally making up fucking lies. But that's who this person is. Um, and so they put in federal charges. The prosecutor ignores the misdemeanors and the federal charges and decides to make it about an immigration case. Because we're in America, in Utah, and these fucking Republican Mormons hate nothing more, apparently right now, than the cause du jour, which is getting immigrants out. And so they ignore those and focus on the immigration status. Um, and it finally came to a head where this last Friday, they gave him two options. You can take the felony, one of the felonies that he was charged with, um, that was the lie and get out of jail because he's been in jail this whole fucking time, just state county jail. Um, uh, and like, it's longer than anyone who ever smacked their fucking wife. He watched guys come in and go that are repeat offenders of, of, uh, spousal abuse, but the prosecutor couldn't get a hold of the fucking uh, individual that made the claim because they are incapable of taking care of themselves. Um, and so they're in and out of hospitals and they're in and out of, of uh, uh, rescue homes because, again, they tried to burn their dumbass down out of the fucking apartment that they lived in because they're incapable of taking care of themselves. And he's been sitting in jail this whole time because the prosecutor doesn't give a fuck. And so he says, look. We're going to turn your ass over to ICE and you take a felony this week or you do 100 more days and you'll only have the misdemeanors. And he's like, 
dude, I've been in here for like, like going on three fucking months. How long should someone have to fucking pay for smacking their wife three fucking months? That's more than anyone I've ever known. And especially a first offender who's never had any history of it, who has an exemplary record other than that one insane fucking moment. It's crazy. And so he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I want out. I want fucking out. I'm done. So he took the goddamn deal, which sucks. But that means he's going to be turned over to ICE. And that means he's going to be deported. And he's probably not going to be able to come back to America, uh, the Americas, like, ever. Because he had a felony on his record. Permanent. So I want to read this story. Um, of all the goddamned injustices to happen to someone, man, it's fucked. And has nothing to do with what he was in for. Anyway, uh, this is the article. I want to throw this up. Give me one second. It's fucked up. Why does it go sideways? That's weird. I need darkness. Darkness needs me. By Colin Martin. The fake smile. The plastic grin. They make my spark go dim. I cannot sustain while trapped in this prison of pain. I need release. This pressure will build until it kills me. Like the dark, light also bends. Without balance, I cannot truly see. Limp handshakes and lackluster hugs, they pull and grab and tug. When surrounded by fake friend, I crave the shadow instead. In silence and solitude, I reinvigorate, rebuild, and recharge. With my fire lit again, I can once again ascend to begin life again. The stillness, the quiet, little slices of death make me value every breath. To live life, you need to appreciate it can swiftly end. To survive the gaping maw of society, you need a retreat, place of hiding. Pay your dues to the gloom, embrace the empty room, and step out into the light, refreshed once again. Let's do a little uh, devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. This one I am calling at what cost? And I was just, I was uh, listening to a random audio book on my way to work, and this struck me in my head. Um, so for those of you who, if not practice, understand satanic magic, it's broken down into two different categories, essentially. You have lesser magic, which is applied psychology, interpersonal interaction, and you have greater magic which is uh, ceremonial and ritual. Uh, this can be done solo or in a group setting, but it's all with one intended purpose. And traditionally, those fall into three categories, lust, compassion, or destruction. Um, but all of them adhere to some of the cornerstones 
of magic. Um, and this is from the Book of Belial, uh, the ingredients used in the performance of satanic magic. And it all comes down to a few key elements. You have desire, timing, imagery, direction, and the balance factor. So it's easy to understand the first ones, but the balance factor is usually the most challenging because, and it's usually only um, really integral to greater satanic magic in the context of a compassion or of lust uh, rituals. But the balance factor in and of itself can be distilled down to this one simple line as outlined by the doctor in the satanic Bible. And that is knowing the proper type of individual and situation to work your magic on for the easiest and best results. Now this is something that is incredibly challenging for innate Satanists beginning uh, to stretch their magical legs, as it were. If you're not a very good witch uh, or warlock, then you know, it's going to take you a little bit of time to understand what that means. But before you even get to the point of understanding what the balance factor means, you have to understand yourself. And that is probably the greatest hurdle for most Satanists to get over. Because we like to bloviate who and what we are. Um, we like to assign more authority or more power or more talent um, to ourselves than is realistic. And that's one of the really important steps to becoming an effective Satanist in life is understanding your limits. You have to be able to honestly and objectively look at yourself in the mirror and say, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, I'm going to further develop these strengths that I find of value and these weaknesses, if they're holding me back in some way, I'm going to work on them. But after you understand who and what you are, and you try to then manipulate the greater world around you, the balance factor is what actually makes it realistic. Here's an example. I would like to sleep with the, you know, some amazing uh, Scarlett Johansson, for example. Now the balance factor dictates that that's not gonna fucking happen. Uh, there's a couple things that work against me in this case. One, I don't fucking know her, meaning I will never have any interaction with her. So any type of magic that I perform is going to be pointless because I will never have any personal interaction with her. And then if I did have personal interaction with her, I'm married, uh, she has her own life, there's no real interest there. And so you have to realistically look at what you want in life in order to create those situations that see them come out. So if I cannot sleep with Scarlett Johansson, and let's pretend I wasn't married, um, and there was someone that was local here and that I could use as a facsimile of her, well, then I could target that individual. And so you understand the balance factor of, I want X, but the realistic side of me achieving X is just not there. So I have to go for Y, which is the next best thing. And that may fly in the face of what some people think of as the point of success in satanic magic. But I would argue that that's the strength of satanic magic. It forces you to look realistically at outcomes. You will not, if you are a, I mean, uh, if I was gay, Henry Cavill, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, um, I don't know, uh, whatever other fucking guy I find attractive. I want to go after them, but they're straight, 
truth is I'm straight, so I'm not going to be able to fuck them. And so I have to look at something realistic. Maybe I got to go troll the gym or something. Do you see what I'm saying? If it's compassion and someone is stricken with cancer and I desperately want to conduct a compassion ritual to help them, I cannot honestly expect my desires to outweigh the potency of the cancer that is uh, deteriorating their body. My desire is outweighed by the reality of the condition that they are in. So I may be able to bring conscious comfort to my friend through ritual. I will not be able to cure them of their cancer. That is the balance factor. Understanding your own limitations within what it is you are trying to accomplish. And so understanding who and what you are then tells you what you can actually accomplish through lesser and greater magic. So at what cost? What do I mean by that? How? <laughs> yeah, Dallas. <laughs> Dude, he's sharp, man. When he's in a suit, goddamn. Uh, maybe I am gay, because I'm hot for that dude. Uh, where was I? Um, uh, at what cost? So, you, you've always heard um, not being able to see the forest for the trees, right? Uh, not being able to see past the end of your own nose. That means your desire is greater than the uh, environment that you're in, or you're just not seeing the whole picture. Well, we as Satanists have to be able to see the whole picture, because otherwise... If I want to fuck Scarlett Johansson so bad that I ruin my relationship with my wife, then my life is in shambles. I no longer have everything that I fought for, a stable and healthy and happy relationship, because I was striving to do something that I just, I was in heat for in the moment. We have to be able to look long term. So at what cost does my desired outcome have an effect on the life that I'm leading? Example, my friend, in the heat of a moment, strikes his wife, and now he is imprisoned. At what cost did he have that moment of rage quelled, and then what is he fucking paying for it? We have to be able to consciously move through life. And that sometimes means that when you're in the heat of the moment, to stop, take a deep breath, and take a step back and examine what is happening before we succumb to our immediate desires. We as Satanists are not hedonists who just go headlong into life and just have every experience and, you know, fuck the lasting uh, uh, life that we're trying to build. No, we have to look at our lives, make goals that are realistic, achieve those goals, and don't let the moment destroy everything that you worked for. If you're just focusing on short-term goals and you don't have a picture of a future, you're never going to grow as a human being. You're never going to be in that position of authority. So I'm a junior partner at an advertising agency. I didn't become a junior partner because I was just focused on getting my paycheck every single or every two weeks, or I was just focused on the one job that I was working at. No, I had to think long-term. What company do I want to be a part of? What type of a career do I want to carve out for myself? The successes that I've found are a result of a long-term goal. Not in the moment, hey, I'm not making enough right now. I'm going to go to another uh, business where I can get paid, you know, 25 grand more a year right now. But then be fired 
you know, because they're downsizing in a year or two. No, I stuck with what I'm doing and that pushes me up raising, you know, uh, position and authority in the company to the point now where I am indispensable to this company. They need me because of what I bring to the table, because of the position that I put myself in. That is where we need to all individual, not, not everyone needs to, you know, rise in whatever profession, but whatever it is that you do, you need to think long-term about it. And I don't know if this comes with age, I don't know if it comes with life experience, or I don't know if it's just the individual themselves, but it is incredibly important to think about those desires that you have in the short term and examine them. Are they going to affect you? At what cost does my quelling my feeling in the moment impact me in the future? And you got to look at those long terms. It is really important. Uh, interpersonal relationships, building bridges. I, <laughs> I, I've, uh, I'm not very good at this. If I'm being a hundred percent honest with you, um, I'm not very good at building interpersonal relationships with friends. For example, uh, I am, I'm, I'm not needy. I just don't like interacting with people. I think ultimately, and when I do interact with them, I want to give them a hundred percent of who and what I am. And sometimes that can freak people out, turn them off, etc. Um, and so <laughs> those insane moments when you're interacting with people sometimes again you got to stop and say is this someone that i care about on some level and that i want to have a long-lasting relationship with maybe i shouldn't do what i'm doing <laughs> i'm bad at this maybe i shouldn't pull my dick out <laughs> for a joke but maybe it's just you know it'll it'll sour the relationship in the long term um i've literally had friends break up with me like they asked me to coffee I'm not even shitting you. And there's like, um, so Adam, I don't think we should see each other anymore. <laughs> just friends. It wasn't like a dating thing. It was just a dude that I had known since junior high and he broke up with me over coffee. Weird. But that, that just speaks to my inability in the moment to gauge the long-term results of my actions. And that's something that it's difficult for me to learn but it's something that's really important if you care. So right now I have some friends that I've known for, you know, years that I would, I would be able to stop myself in a minute if it meant ruining those relationships because I, I value them. I care about them. So if we get into an argument or a fight, for example, I'm not going to go overboard. I'm not going to ruin the relationship because I'm pissed off in the moment. I'm going to be able to swallow my pride or get my jabs in and then move on. It's very rare that I actually cut off relationships for long term. And it's only because the other person has lost their fucking mind. It's like never because I've just gone, you know, overboard. I'm just like, I, I'm the right one in this situation. I can't, you know, whatever. Um, so you, burning bridges is something that you have to be able to have a little bit of perspective before you do so that you know later on it's not going to matter. Uh, because again, burning bridges doesn't always matter interpersonally. It can matter professionally. And, and that is something you never want to um, hurt yourself um, with. And, um, and that means that I go through life using just this little rule of thumb where every single person I meet, I give them a basic level of human respect. Uh, and that means that I don't shit on them um, uh, proverbially. I don't talk down to them. At least I don't try to. 
And if they have a, a quirk or a you know stupid story, then I quietly listen to it. And in my head, I'm strangling them. And then I move on about my life. And they have no idea that I felt that way. And that's just it. Um, you know, for example, that, that party I went to, um, uh, the birthday party last night, there were some conversations I had with people that I was just like, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? <laughs> You're like, come on. But I swallowed my pride and I moved on. That's it. <laughs> Wes. Tangent. Um, how's it going, Wes? It's good to see you, man. Thanks for joining this. I appreciate it. I'm going to have you on one of these, one of these days. Uh, Jordan, good to see you. Is that it? I think that's it. Okay. So that's all I had for the devil's advocate. I was just reflecting on it, and it's a really important part of not just lesser magic, but in engaging in life in and of itself. And being able to focus on the short term and understanding its lasting effects is really, really important if you're want, trying to build anything in life. And ideally, if you're a Satanist, you're moving through life with intention. And so you're always going to be building something, whether it's a personal, professional relationship or, or a career. You have to think. You got to use this, man, not just a hat rack. All right. Let's do a little bit of an infernal informant. creepy slow uh sorry i'm pulling this up really quick give me a second all right i found this article interesting um on a couple different levels and so we're going to talk about it so this is california couple missing for eight days found alive police called it a miracle this is brought to us by foxnews.com um, so this couple was last seen on Valentine's Day at their Airbnb. It was a rented cottage near Inverness in Northern California. Uh, they never checked in the next day as they planned to and failed to show up for an appointment on the 16th. Um, housekeepers went to the cottage to clean up, but they found the couple's phones and wallets in addition to their vehicle parked outside of the rental home. Mystery, right? Where did they go? What happened to them? Um, uh, we have a quote here saying they left for a hike on Valentine's Day. They got lost at dark and didn't know what happened. Um, the couple, who were unprepared for the long hike, were wearing lightweight clothing and had no food as night temperatures fell into the 30s, uh, even in California. <laughs> um, the reason they were most likely alive when they were discovered was because they were drinking from a puddle that they found near where they were located. So it's estimated that four to 500 people over this eight-day period, went searching for this couple. But because they were in a place that was so covered in thick brush, they weren't able to be found for that long. And so, like, they officially stopped trying, and, and I guess a couple people were just not willing to give it up, um, and they were just walking through brush, and they heard cries for help. They finally discovered these people, had them uh, carried out by helicopter, uh, and they were rescued. So the two people were Irwin, uh, who is a leading Parkinson's disease researcher. He was a chemist on the team that originally identified an agent responsible for the outbreak of Parkinsonism among heroin addicts in 1982, according to the newspaper. And his spouse, Kiparsky, who is a prominent linguist and author of several books on the language, including 1975's The Goof Icon, a repair manual for English. So these two people of means were discovered. And I couldn't 
help reflect on a couple notes on this story because I, this is just how my brain works. Immediately, I go to the heartwarming side of it where I'm like, oh, wow, think of the passion that the local rescue persons had to go for eight days, four to 500 people contributing to find these two people. The power of that sense of community is overwhelming. Like people genuinely care about these two people lost in the woods in Northern California. I, I just thought the idea of community was, uh, it just took my breath away. And then I started thinking, wow, these two people were really fucking stupid to go hiking through thick brush without proper clothing, food, or supplies. Like, that's ridiculous. Who fucking does that? What kind of, what kind of person goes hiking with no means of survival on the off chance they get injured or lost? Stupidity, right? Well, stupidity should be painful. In this particular case, it was. But the community went above and beyond their stupidity and rescued their ass. And then I started thinking, wow, it's amazing that even in today's world, there are places in America, which make me feel kind of good, that you can get lost in. That you can escape the urban environment and just you're, get lost. Like, no paths, no s s lamp posts. Do they, are there lamp posts still in the streetlights? Lamp posts. Um, that you can actually just get lost. I love that. That exists still. It, it belies the apparent reality that, you know, most of us live in in these urban environments where you can't get any time alone ever. So I thought that was interesting. And then I thought, huh, four or 500 people for eight days search for these two people. That would never happen for any non-individual of means if they were not esteemed in their uh, industries, if they were not held to some level of authority they would have been fucking written off. If they were poor, if they were mechanics, fuck them. There's no way that four or 500 people would have searched for them. They would have just written them off after two days of searching, if that. If they were immigrants, who gives a fuck? They would have just fucking abandoned them. And so my sense of humanity that I felt when I first heard that story immediately dissolved in the reality that the only reason why people looked for these two was because they had fucking professions that were considered valuable. If they picked fucking apples at a fucking orchard, you think people would have looked for them still? After eight days? No fucking way. They were ready to give up on these two after eight days. No. And so I just can't help but think, wow, we don't, there, every single day I run across, I, I look at uh, news.google.com, which just sends me a feed of tons of information. There's always stuff, oh, uh, this daughter went missing and uh, the mother is freaking out. Uh, this this uh, mother and two kids uh, were found and, and uh, uh, after, you know, seven years of searching and they found their bodies. There's always stories of people who do not have money, who are not in positions of authority or, or people of substance as society dictates that are found years later and only their skeletons are found or remnants of their remains are found. 
but these two were worth finding because one wrote a fucking book and the other was a fucking chemist. And I'm not trying to shit on them. Good for them. They spent their life to work to something and they did. And it, it rewarded them. Awesome. That's how I think it should go. But we can't use stories like this as a means of feeling good about our culture when our culture, more often than not, forgets and condemns people based on their fucking economic status. And I'm not saying that they should or they shouldn't. I'm just facing the reality that that's the life we live. That is the reality of our culture. And I can't feel good about that. <laughs> I mean, cheers to these two. But what about everyone else? Fuck them. Man, that appears to be... So That's that, I wanted to bring that up because I thought that was interesting. I just... I went through this range of thought when I <laughs> read this one story. I was like, huh, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen a lot, but that one hit it. All right, here's the next one. <sighs> I can do this. Oh, God damn. All right, people, here we go. 75 years ago today, U.S. Marines raised the American flag over Iwo Jima. And this is the inside story. So this is arguably the most famous, perfectly composed news photo of all time. And there was a lot of, um, for years after it was taken, a lot of uh, lies being spread about it being posed and um, presented, uh, like composed intentionally. But, it, you know, it, it actually was just in the moment. Um, and there's a really wonderful story about this. I've got a link in this show notes. So uh, after this is live, go to the link or just search the article yourself. This is brought by CNN.com. Um, so 75 years since the Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal captured this iconic photograph of six U.S. Marines raising an American flag over the battle-scarred Japanese island of Iwo Jima. Uh, we are here today uh, still talking about it because of look at it. Uh, it triggered a wave of national hope that Japanese forces would soon be crushed and peace was near. It spurred millions of Americans to buy war bonds to keep the nation on solid financial footing. Basically, this simple photo was so powerful that it helped win World War II. And then, anger and ugly rumors over whether the Pulitzer Prize winning photo was staged. And so I want to read this bit of a story uh, that talks about the history of it because I... I think it's really important and uh, fantastic. Um, oh, geez, where am I starting here? Here we go. Hey, there she goes. On February 23rd, 1945, Rosenthal, an Associated Press photographer covering the battle for Iwo Jima, had heard Marines were headed up the mountain. He decided to make the climb and see what was going on. But Sergeant Lewis Lowry, a marine photographer of Leatherneck magazine, had beat him to it. Lowry was already on the summit, snapping photos of marines proudly raising the American flag. For miles around, the sight of old glory atop the mountain set off whistles, gunfire, and celebrations. The noise stirred up a firefight with Japanese soldiers near the summit. Lowry dove for cover and fell 50 feet, smashing his camera. Lowry decided to descend the mountain to get new equipment. On the way, he ran into Rosenthal, coming up with two Marines, Private First Class Bob Campbell, who was also a photographer, and Sergeant William Ganost, who was a motion picture photographer. According to Buell, Lowry said, 
Hey, you're late, fellas. There's already a flag up there. Lowry told Rosenthal that he should keep going to experience the breathtaking view. As Rosenthal got closer to the summit, the flag became, uh, began to come into view. He stopped and was struck by a wave of emotion about what it cost to put the flag up there, Buell said. Rosenthal thought about that bloody fighting and the Marines who sacrificed their lives to capture the mountain. Reaching the top, Rosenthal, Campbell, and Genost spotted a group of Marines holding a second flag. The Marines said that they'd been ordered to replace the first flag with a bigger one so more people could see it below. Suddenly, Rosenthal knew he had a second chance to photograph an important moment on the summit. Let's stop for a minute and remember that this was long before today's sophisticated cameras and digital technology. Photographers took one image at a time, often with only one opportunity to get the perfect shot. Rosenthal had to quickly decide whether to shoot both flags simultaneously, one rising while the other lowered, or to photograph the second flag as it was being raised. He chose on focusing on the second flag. Rosenthal's choice made all the difference. Joe did not pose that picture, Buell said. He explains what happened. While the photographers were taking their positions to get the shot, Genost, the motion picture photographer, asked Joe, I'm not in your way, am I? Joe turned to look at Genost, who suddenly saw the flag rising and said, Hey, there she goes! Up came the flag. Just in time, Rosenthal raised his camera to his eye and took the shot. There it was, a genuine moment in history, artfully captured for all time. This one photograph arguably has been used for more propaganda <laughs> for America than any other. Um, and so propaganda aside and just talking about the beauty of composition, this is the other part of this I wanted to bring up. Um, and this is why I celebrate artists so much more than virtually any other type of individual. And why, as an artist, uh, I genuinely feel empowered when moving through life. Because I think about things like color, composition, light, message in the, the uh, communication of whatever it is that, that I'm creating. This is what... It means to be a photographer or a painter or a designer or a, a motion capture artist. All the people that make all of the books, all of the videos that you watch, all of the films that you celebrate, all of the magazines that you read, if anyone ever reads magazines anymore, um, that lay out newspapers. They are artists who are doing so with intention in order to communicate messages. This one photo... If he would have been tilted just to the left or the right or up or down, just slightly, the entire composition would have been off. And it takes a professional eye, an artist's eye, to actually compose it within the lens. To understand that the light is coming from here, the drama of darkness is coming from here, and that if I stand here and not here, I can get this perfect shot. And so much so that because it wasn't composed, in that instant of it going up, he was able to stop, compose himself, take the shot, and move on about his day without ever having seen this. Because he had to see, he, there's no digital viewer in 1945. They literally took the roll of film hoping something worked, and their exposures were set right, and their depth of field was correct. And then they sent it off for processing. He didn't see it till like, days or weeks later. And then it was like, oh, yeah. That was me. Yeah, that was awesome. 
But he wouldn't have been able to get that shot if he didn't have that eye, the artist's eye. It's something that we've got to celebrate. We have to appreciate what it is that brings these images to life and its experience and its knowledge. It's not just pushing a button or being in the right place. There are many ways that he could have fucked this image up and it would have been useless and never chosen. But because he was a professional, because he knew those basic ideas, he could compose it, position himself, and capture a moment that would, for the rest of humanity as we've known it so far, inspire everyone who looks at this one image. Oh, God. It's, it's brilliant. And I just love it so much. As long as you don't focus on the propaganda side of it, which I have a hard time doing because I was raised by Korean War vets and Vietnam War vets. So I have this inherent patriotism from my youth that is just instilled in me. Uh, man, oh glory. The, the, because you don't see the flag. When I look at it, I don't see a flag. I, I don't see um, stars and I don't see stripes. <laughs> I see the cost that it took for that flag to exist. And that's the impact that it has on me to this day. I mean, so, you know, whether or not you like the idea of war, whether you're not like the idea of America, whether you like the idea of the concept of patriotism, sometimes it's from your childhood. It's, it's a part of who and what you are, a part of your DNA. And when I served, I didn't sacrifice anything in any semblance of comparison to them. But I do feel like I'm a part of that legacy. And that feels good. It feels really good. I met a guy last night who was wearing BDUs, which is battle dress uniform. It's uh, the camouflage pants. Um, and it was the green ones that I wore when I was in the service. They don't do it anymore. It's like desert browns or something now and i was asking him hey did you serve and he was like oh no no i was punk and in my head i was just like fuck you man you're using those as a fucking counterculture fashion statement <sighs> all right i gotta move on I'm going to fucking lose it. All right. Uh, let's do the last segment here, Creature Feature. We are dangerously close to the end of the show. All right, here we go. Let's talk some games. Let's lighten the mood, shall we? <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm what I would call a gamer. I'm not a gamer as in I played video games, though I have played video games my entire life. I'm a Nintendo generation kid. NES. My um I believe it was my grandma that first bought it for our family. 
and it was the Legend of Zelda was it. Uh, my my father, my brother, I th- maybe everyone in my family, even Amy, I think. Um, that was our game, originally, like the first video game console we ever played, and that was the biggest game that we ever played, Legend of Zelda. It was amazing, and so I grew up gaming. Uh, in my middle school and uh, high school days, I was a huge Dungeons and Dragons uh, geek. Like I was way too into it. Uh, as I went to college and I served in the military and stuff, I got away from that. I played a little bit less, uh, games online, but the older I got, the less time I had to play games, but I'd always had a base level of board games to play. Um, and you know, whether it's Monopoly or Sorry or whatever the traditional board games were, I always loved board games. And so growing up with our son and now our daughter, Um, Less with our daughter than with our son, but we always spent time playing board games because there's a lot to be learned, I think, from games. Board games specifically, but games in general. Um, You understand rules, expectations. You learn to operate and manipulate situations within confined sets of rules. And I think that's important, especially as Satanists. We have to be able to, to use lesser magic and manipulate situations within set boundaries. Um, and so I think that's a healthy way of, of, of testing those boundaries. Um, so board games were always really important to us. Uh, I, and you can't see it, but I've got like shelves full of them. But none of them were as easily accessible and drop in and drop out as Ticket to Ride. This is a fantastic game created by Alan R. Moon and released by Days of Wonder. Um, Ticket to Ride is a cross-country train adventure in which players collect and play matching trade cards to claim railway routes connecting cities throughout North America. The longer the routes, the more points they earn. Additional points come to those who can fulfill destiny tickets by connecting two distant routes and the player who builds the longest continuous railway. So essentially, you're just collecting card tickets, trying to match up colors of cards, and then claiming tracks of that same color card that you've been collecting. Um, and what's great about it is that it's, I mean, it's stupid, simple to understand. It's just you, the more routes you collect, the longer the route, the more points you get. And so whoever has the most point, points at the end wins. It's a point collecting game. It's super simple. Um, but then you have other people playing with you. And then you have to use a little bit of strategy. Because you've got to watch the routes that they're trying to build. And then you've got to not only match up your routes, but try to stop them from finishing theirs too. And so you'll randomly put claim routes that you don't even need just to stop them from being able to collect theirs. And so there's a little bit of you know cutthroat fun nature to the game and stuff the deeper you want to get into it. But if you just want to do surface level stuff, it's easy for any kid to understand. And that's why I love it so much, is that it, it is a simple frame that you can get as strategic and complex as you want with, but it's still easy to just forget about as soon as it's over and have fun and laugh. Um, and that, I think, is what's so important about playing games, is that not only are you getting these wonderful family experiences and connecting over something that you're doing together, you know, it's, it's different from, like, watching a film, for example, where it's all just passive. No, you are engaging you're engaging with the game itself you're engaging with the other players you're thinking about your relationship with them as you decide should i fuck this person or should i help this person um and like in the same way monopoly is another one of my favorites you build 
alliances and, and you make little, you know, deals with people. And it, it just gets to be a lot of fun. Um, and so that's why I love this. Uh, and so a little quote from the uh, creator, and this is what he said when he originally thought up this idea. <clears throat> he loves route building games and he loved railroads. So his goal with Ticket to Ride was to design a game that combined these two things in the simplest way possible while remaining a game that was fun to play no matter how many times you played it. He also wanted to emphasize it on being uh, on building routes from coast to coast. People often asked him if he knew the game would be a hit, uh, but he'd known that. If he'd known that, he would have designed it 20 years earlier. Um, it's it's a great game, and I highly recommend it for anyone who likes board games in concept, because it's a great fun game. There's also digital versions of the game. There are different maps, like this is the U.S. map, but there's um, Germany and Japan, and like they had tons of expansions, tons of versions of the game. And again, like I said, it's on your phone if you have a smartphone, and it's on your computer if you have Steam, um, which is a, a video game service platform. Um, it's really great. Uh, I don't know this. Oh, I'm going to throw this out. Um, so I highly recommend it. Ticket to Ride, it is a great board game, one of my favorites. And let me know if you guys have recommendations for board games. Uh, it's got to be something that's sort of family-oriented. I've got one that I've been dying to play with my wife and our kids um, that I'm going to probably review as soon as we have played it a couple times, but it's just been sitting there enticing me, and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, but we're just not there yet. So Ticket to Ride, check it out. It's fantastic, and you're going to love it. And that, my friends, is it. That's the end. We've already reached an hour. Damn. I can talk for a long time by myself. <laughs> I may have problems. You hate every cartridge game ever made for all the systems? <laughs> oh, you have every. <laughs> you know, the biggest problem with the Nintendo Entertainment System was that it forced us all to do the exact same thing when the cartridge wouldn't work. You would take the cartridge out and look at it and then blow in it, like, to get all the dust out. And then you would try to slide it in and push it down at, like, every, like you'd push it all the way in and then push it down if it didn't work. Then you'd barely slide it in and then just try to slide it, push it down. And you'd just fuck with it until you could finally get it to work. It forced every single person to lose their mind. And the entire up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, uh, A, B, A, B, start, or something like that, which was a contra cheat code that if you did it right at the title screen was coming up, you would get, like, unlimited lives. Every nerd in my generation knew what that sequence was. I might be off because it's been a while, but the idea of it is still there. Or, or everyone who understands what um, all your base are belong to us. <laughs> you gotta be my generation to know what that is. Or be steeped in old school games. Because it was just a translation of a Japanese uh, to English for a video game that just changed it all. Uh, yeah, dude. It was uh, gaming, man. It was great. <laughs> I had a lot of good times with Zelda. And then you'd like, finish the first board, the first world. And then there would be like a secret world after that. And I, I think there was like, multiple secret worlds where it reset to the original world after you beat the secret world. But like, my, my dad would come home with graph paper from working all night, and before he'd crash, he'd played the game for hours. And then he would, like, draw out the dungeons of Legend of Zelda so that 
in the morning when he was sleeping, my brother and I would go reference his graph paper maps of the dungeons in order to complete them. Because literally, you just had to like randomly bomb bomb different squares to see where a secret door was or you know whether you're going to go in this weird labyrinth and get nowhere you know to get to the end boss of the the individual dungeon great game great game legend of zelda number one. Oh, he was awesome man good times all right um what else do we got what are you guys saying in the chat room there's a socialist monopoly game out too <laughs> what? Uh, man i love me some monopoly i don't lose I, I don't I don't think I've ever lost a Monopoly game in like a decade. I love it so much. It's so good. You love Dawn of the Dead board game. Ooh, I haven't played that one. I'm gonna have to check that out because I love dead things. Dead things, Mikey. Dead things. I'm not a big risk guy, but I can play it. Um I'm fine with it. That's a good one. Uh what else is there? Aaron, what is the name of the game we played with Brandon, Caden, and Canyon? blow insert wiggle press yeah dude that was it seriously it was freaking crazy i never did the q-tip with the alcohol uh charles i should have i should have thought about that but i never did nintendo even made a ouija board game what i did not know that that's awesome that's insane that's great all right uh that's gonna do it enough video game talk enough board game talk chess is great my son. As soon as my son started beating me at chess, I stopped playing chess. <laughs> he was like, he's just a stupid kid who I could just beat up in real life. And then he just whips my ass at chess. And I'm just like, fuck. All right. I've reached my limit. <laughs> and then I can't play video games because my wife beats me at those. <laughs> so I just, I'm screwed. I got nothing. I got board games. That's all I got. All right. Um, thank you guys. Mike Tyson's knockout. Oh, dude. That was great. That was great. Tough, but good. That's it for this episode. Thank you guys so much. Um, if you enjoyed it, which I hope you did, you can view past episodes of Nine Cents or my other satanic series on my website, reverendcampbell.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or other satanic projects of mine, I would ask that you like this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and sign up to my email list that you can also find in the description of the video right below that you're watching right now. Uh, and of course, there are audio podcast versions of these video podcasts. Just go to your favorite podcast app, search Reverend Campbell, and I'm going to come up right there and you can get every episode for the past 200-ish episodes that I've uh, produced, which is a lot of satanic content. A lot. Years of it, in fact. However, if you want archives of every satanic episode you can get them by series so if you want all the nine cents archives or you want all the you and me and the devil makes three archives or all of the uh what other series do i do uh satanist on satanic cinema or uh i know there's more reading reading aloud there's like another one speak of the devil the last one series that i did all of those are available as standalone rss fees just go to my website reverendcampbell.com and you're going to find them there thank you everyone so much for your interaction your engagement and your support with all these shows I do appreciate it, and uh, I'm hoping that you appreciate it too, and that's why you're tuning in. Until next week, everyone, hail Satan. <laughs> Have a great night, everyone.